How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we'll explore the limits of economic growth as the primary organizing principle of our society. The American economy has been on a bender. For decades, we've been smoking fossil fuels, snorting consumer debt, and chugging consumer goods. For a while, that felt pretty good. But lately, we're realizing maybe that's not a healthy or sustainable way to live. Is perpetual economic growth possible? Is it desirable? Is it conceivable to construct a steady-state economy that doesn't careen from expansion to contraction? For the next hour, we'll discuss an economy beyond growth here with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco and two authors who have been thinking deeply about what they call an addiction to growth. We're delighted to welcome Paul Gilding, professor at Cambridge University Program for Sustainability Leadership. He's the author of the new book, The Great Disruption, why the climate crisis will bring on the end of shopping and the birth of a new world. And Richard Heinberg is a senior fellow at the Post Carbon Institute here in Northern California and the author of The End of Growth, Adapting to Our New Economic Reality. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you both for coming. Uh, I think it's fair to say that almost every citizen, certainly every politician and corporate leader in America wants the American economy to grow, to grow again. What's wrong with that? Paul Gilling? It's not going to happen, is the main (laughs) problem. Um, And it's not going to happen, I don't mean literally 1% here or there, but fundamentally the idea that we can keep on growing an economy up against the physical limits of the earth in terms of resource availability, oil, climate, water, land, etc., is not physically possible. And so now we're kind, of, we're kind of trapped, really, that if we grow the economy significantly again, then we'll hit those limits again. Prices will go up, oil prices will go up, food prices will go up, and the economy will go down. If we don't grow the economy, we're going to drown in debt. So we're sort of stuck, if you like, stuck between growth and, and debt, and therefore we're going to take a while to find our way out of this morass that we've dug ourselves into. Richard Heinberg, you write about uh, the Great Depression and how the growth, it took 40 years for nominal GDP to come back after right. uh, the Great Depression. Are we in, is that a similar situation? It's going to take 40 years to get back to where we were? Uh, no, I think it's much worse. Uh, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't think we'll ever see growth the way we experienced it during the decades of, of the 20th century. Uh, if we're thinking of growth in terms of increased consumption, then I think it's all over, really. Uh, whether you look at uh, limits to natural resources like oil and other fossil fuels and uh, minerals and metals, or, or whether you look at the, the basic model of, uh, of money being created from debt, we, we've created a, 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 an economy that's structurally uh, hitting the wall. In, in both instances, also the, the impacts from um, industrial accidents and uh, natural disasters. We're also seeing uh, burgeoning costs in that area. So if fundamentally, we're going to have to create an economy that exists within nature's limits. 
the um, American consumer, for, to a large extent, has been the engine of growth, buying stuff, mm-hmm. driving the economy mm-hmm. for uh, for the last couple of decades. And clearly, American consumers are you know over their heads in, in debt. And some people would say, well. The middle class in China and Brazil and India will come along, and they're going to be the consumer drivers for growth. So it really depends on where you are and what your interest is. So yes, it's certainly true that the U.S. Uh, consumer has done wonderful things for the Chinese economy um, by buying all those consumer goods. That's certainly true. But um, and yes, there will be growth, I think, in those developing countries for some time until they hit their limits. But fundamentally, you kind of have this this. Uh, physical constraint on global growth, which will play out differently in different places. And I think it's particularly difficult in many Western countries, US and Europe in particular, because of the debt um, constraint. It's easier to get past the limits for a while and sort of go into debt more, if you like, ecologically, if you have lots of financial resources to finance that. The trouble with economies like North America and like Europe is that you haven't got the debt, haven't got the money to drive the process, so you're constrained by debt as well. So I, I think Richard would agree that we're not talking about a sudden zero growth from now on, you know, absolutely numerically, but we are talking about the system being broken, and that's the place we've got to. So no matter how many, how much we want the Chinese middle class and Indian middle class to overtake the role and drive global growth, that they are still facing the same economic um, problems of ecological and resource limits. And so we, both of you talk about the earth operating at uh, – the economy is now, what, at 140 percent. There's different numbers out there. We need three earths or something like that to, to support everyone living at a, at a Western, European, or, or American uh, standards. But say we're sitting here in San Francisco. It's a sunny day. Mm-hmm. The, the economy's working, maybe not so great. The buses are moving. Yeah. Where are the limits? This is, this is what we've been doing. We've been borrowing from the past – by way of fossil fuels. This is, this is energy that was captured from sunlight tens of millions of years ago and, and buried in the ground and, and turned into energy-dense, cheap, easily accessible fuels. So mm-hmm. we've been borrowing from the Earth's past, and we're also borrowing from future generations by way of debt, all so that we can consume as much as possible right now. And we've been pretty successful at that for the last century. But there's only so long you can continue borrowing from both the past and the future to, to fund present consumption. And then on a personal level, you know, just back to your point about... Because it, it, it is very hard. It is very hard to go out and say, look, the world's in a crisis, it's all going to fall apart. Well, it doesn't feel like that. It feels pretty good to me. And it's like living on a credit card. It feels pretty good, right, yes. until the bill comes in. So if you're living on your credit card, you don't notice that your lifestyle can't be afforded. You don't notice you're having nice food, you're buying nice clothes, you're doing the things you want to do. And then one day the bill comes in. And so Richard's point is that the bill is coming in now for the earth. And as we would lose our house for the credit card bill, we're in danger of losing the big house in terms of the planet. And you talk about a move to uh, away from sort of this boom and bust uh, cycle from from expansion to contraction. You both write about uh, a steady state economy. And Paul, you write about where people work less and spend less. Uh, so, what does that look like? Something beyond growth. Well, we know that uh, ecosystems function and they change over time, uh, and yet they do that with relatively constant flows of energy and material. New species appear, they outcompete other species, and so on. It's always evolving. Well, that's how the human economy looked for thousands of years up until the 20th century, before we had this, this period of rapid growth. And that's what it's going to look like 
after the end of economic growth as well. It's not as though uh, everything is going to come to a, a, a grinding halt, but the, the commerce that proceeds will be proceeding within the limits of what nature can sustainably provide, the, the uh, renewable energy from the sun and wind and, and mm-hmm. tides and so on, and recycling of non-renewable resources uh, to the absolute limit that we can. Uh, it, it won't be a static economy in the sense that it will constantly look the same because uh, the human ingenuity will, will constantly bring on new products, new processes, and so on. But it will be an economy that does not grow in terms of rates of consumption of natural resources. And in that context, it's important to remember this is not about the end of capitalism or the end of business or the end of change. It's just about it happening within, the, within those constraints. So we are going to see amazing new technologies come to the fore and we are going to see certain companies grow in very exciting ways and produce wonderful new products that will make our lives a lot better. But the reality is if you're replacing a multi-trillion dollar industry, just coal, oil and gas alone, let alone all the support mechanisms around that, that's a big change. And so you need a lot of growth over here to overcome the collapsing system over there. And therefore I think the argument that Richard and I would agree upon is, is that you know, we are going to go through a difficult period of transition to something different. So it's not, that, it's not that things will stop and things will never change. It's just that the way we do that will have to be done again within those physical constraints of the earth. So you're not proposing Stalinist decay or centralized economy. Got it. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, Which is a good thing. Yeah, it's good. Certainly. <laughs> um, uh, so some companies in some sectors will, clo- will grow and some will contract. Mm-hmm. And overall aggregate growth will be slower than what we've been used to seeing. Yeah. Okay. Um, then some would say that, so you would subscribe to the idea that green growth, that the, mm-hmm. so clean technology can be a driver of growth, and that growth is okay. You're not against all growth. You're just saying that growth as we've seen it. I, I, think, it's, I think it's important to separate what we expect green growth to deliver. So what's wrong with much of the current analysis is that we think it's okay, green growth will save us from a crisis, from a, from a tragedy of the system breaking down. Technology will save us. Yeah, right. and it's a techno-optimist view of the world and it's been around for a long time and it's a, it's a lovely vision and I would like to subscribe to it. I used to. I just kept on reading too many books about physics and chemistry and the rules of that don't seem to comply with my wishes for some reason, which is very annoying, but there you go. So the point is that those technologies, those industries will achieve remarkable things, right, and will grow dramatically, but they will not prevent a climate crisis because it's too late. They will not overcome the limits of physical land available for food. They will not create new water and new sunshine. Right? We actually work within those constraints, and that's the issue we face. And you write about scream, crash, boom. Tell mm-hmm. us what that means in terms of, I'd like to get Richard also in terms of when sure. we will move, what will be the catalyst to drive us toward this ecosystem model of economy? Yeah, so I, I started, I wrote a paper in 2005 called Scream, Crash, Boom, and the argument was that the scream was kind of the 50 years of environmentalism, saying, you know, wake up, we have a crisis. And, and that we had 50 years to change or our children's children would suffer. And after 50 years, we've, we've become their children's children. right? So it's on our watch that it's happening, and that's the crash. So the crash is simply that we are now facing, and this is not a forecast, this is measurement. right? So I'm not for, this is not sort of Malthusian or limits to growth about what would happen in 30, 40, 30 or 40 years' time. This is 2010, 2011 measurements of what's actually occurring, and that is the climate system breaking down. Right, that is peak oil being reached. That is, you know, food supply being constrained, so food prices going up. This is the crash that we're in now, and that will unfold further. The boom is simply not so much a boom as in we're all saved by the boom, but the boom will be in the dramatic economic transformation towards a new model. 
Right? So we are going to see spectacular change in various parts of the economy, but we are not going to see it fast enough now to overcome the physical crisis caused by the limits of resources. And there'll be a lot of pain in that transition, Richard. A lot of pain. Uh, yes, and, and we're, we're starting to see that now with the, with the collapse of the, of the financial systems that have been built with the expectation of continual growth. Um, it, it's being called in, in some quarters a growth crisis. In other words, uh, look at some of the European countries, Greece, Ireland, Portugal, and so on. They ran, ran up enormous amounts of debt. Our own country is sort of in the same category. The assumption was that uh, as the economy grew, then tax revenues would also grow, and we'd be able to service this debt and, and pay it off. It wouldn't be a, a larger and larger uh, portion of, uh, of the, the national budget. But that assumption is proving wrong as we're, as we're hitting these, these growth limits. One thing that's happening is uh, high oil prices are setting a, a limit on economic growth, especially in the already industrialized countries like the U.S. With oil prices at $100 a barrel, it's very difficult for the economy to grow. Uh, so then that has uh, repercussions on the financial system. So, and then that has repercussions on real people, and it sends them ultimately out into the street, as we've been seeing in Middle East, North Africa, Greece, Ireland, and now the United States. Richard Heinberg is a senior fellow at the Post Carbon Institute. Our other guest today at Climate One is Paul Gilding, a professor at Cambridge University's Program for Sustainability Leadership. Uh, Peak oil was mentioned, and uh, we've had a lot of people here who talk about peak oil, a lot of people who dismiss it, a lot of people who subscribe to it. Um, let me just challenge a little bit on peak oil. Every time someone mentions peak oil, there's a big new find in the Arctic mm-hmm. or in Cuba or off the coast of Brazil, and people would say the technology that's being applied to fracking of natural gas will get increase the yield from known oil wells. There's no peak oil. Mm-hmm. Well... It's true we are finding new oil. What's happening is we're replacing uh, giant deposits of high-quality, cheap-to-produce, uh, quick-to-produce oil with deposits of low-quality, hard-to-access, expensive, and slow-to-produce oil. Uh, so it's not as though we're running out. What's actually being discovered these days is fairly trivial fields as compared to the ones that were being found in the 1950s and 60s. So, yes, we are finding more, but the, the, what we're seeing in real time in terms of price and production is uh, since 2005, global crude oil production has been flat. Last six years, almost seven years, and that's in the context of very high prices that would bring to market all of the oil that, uh, that could be produced. Uh, the evidence suggests that we're at a, a plateau right now that is going to lead probably within the next two, three, four years to, to declining world oil production. Uh, that's, again, that's not to say that uh, new technology won't produce more marginal uh, oil from some sources, but it's, it's sort of like we're getting better and better at scraping the bottom of the barrel. We had an economist here last week from UC Berkeley who said if renewables are successful in displacing oil, take out 10 to 15 percent of the oil market, the price collapsed back to 15 or 20 dollars where it was for, for decades. Awesome. I think this is, uh, which is the peak oil expert, but let me talk about renewables a little bit, because I think there is just amazingly exciting things happening in that space. And I do think that we can look forward to some pretty dramatic breakthroughs in the cost of solar in particular but across the board in terms of renewables. And I think about the solar energy industry globally has been growing at 40% per year. 
right? And every time it doubles, the price goes down by 20%. So if you apply that to any other industry, you would say, well, you know where it's going. It looks like mobile phones, digital cameras, etc. So we're seeing ex- ex- exceptional takeoff. Now, in that context, I think it becomes very hard to predict oil prices, very hard to predict, you know, behaviour in the economy broadly. However, it takes a long time to drive the change physically, right? So I do think we are going to see much cheaper solar power. I do think solar is going to be cheaper than coal, certainly within de- in a decade, probably less. Certainly China is, you know, working towards uh, grid parity for solar, right? So solar going into the grid at, 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 at the point of production being as cheap or cheaper than coal from a new coal-fired power station. So if that happens, then the game changes quite dramatically. However, the problem is that they actually change, for example, if we change the entire global auto fleet to electric cars, that's a long process. And so those things don't happen overnight. And the incumbents fight it. You're from Australia, where I believe the large, uh, largest global coal exporter the coal companies aren't just going to sit by and watch this happen. Yeah, surprise, surprise. <laughs> and really annoying. Um, but to be expected, and to be expected a lot more of, you know, in the coming years, is they are fighting tooth and nail. They are going to do whatever it takes to defend their patch. And it's up to government to overcome that and to have the courage to actually stare them down and to enforce the change, which is what's been happening in Australia. We just had a carbon tax going through the parliament in the last few weeks. And I was told that that looks a little bit like Swiss cheese. There's some carve-outs for sure. to get it through, but you think it's still an effective step to Look, put I, it... For- I think the key thing is that we're going to cross that dreaded line that you haven't crossed yet, which is that we're saying nationally we have to deal with the issue, right? Mm-hmm. So the price itself is very low. The, there are many, comp, you know, many compensating factors for coal and oil companies and so on, but the point is that there is now a price on carbon, or soon will be in Australia, which means every balance sheet shows the cost of carbon. And once the business community and markets understand that there is a consequence to emitting carbon, the psychological shift of that is quite significant. So economically, it's not so important yet, but in terms of the symbolism, it's very powerful. And it means we no longer have a debate about whether we should act on climate or not. We only have a debate on how we should act and how fast we should act, which is a very different context than the new poor people are having here. And, uh, yes, that, us Americans. The, the, um, uh, jo- one of you quotes Joseph Schumpeter, the, the mm-hmm. idea of creative destruction, that, that this yeah. is quite natural for this kind of destruction mm-hmm. within industries, that then out of the decay of w- one sector or technology sprouts something very new and yes. vibrant. And, and, and the, uh, this is the techno-optimist view of the world sort of on steroids, if you like, is that creative destruction is a good thing. Right, and that we would always have that. And it's true that markets always, you know, reform and change. And if you looked at the Dow Jones 30 years ago, 60 years ago, of course, it would be completely different. Google didn't exist. Microsoft, you know, hardly existed 30 years ago, etc. So those, that happens. But it doesn't happen that fast. And it doesn't happen at that scale to take out big oil companies overnight. And it happens a lot slower in energy than it does software and technology. Correct. Technology goes in months, software goes in months and weeks, and... And uh, energy infrastructure goes in decades. And that's a big national economic issue when you have a lot of money invested in the infrastructure of that. So when you have train lines to carry coal, when you have ports to carry oil and gas, you know, when you have that thing built in and you're spending billions of dollars on that and you depend upon that for um, the strength of your economy, it's not as easy as changing a mobile phone. Richard, you also talk about peak phosphorus and the idea of peak food. I, uh, that, was, that was a new one for me. I've heard of peak uh, 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 plutonium and, and peak uh, lithium because of all the you know, in, in car batteries. But let's talk about the food aspect of this. Which 
Right. Well, we've built a food system that is uh, basically a way of propping up plants while we feed them fossil fuels. Also, we use fossil fuels for uh, transporting inputs to the farm, transporting outputs from the farm ultimately to the consumer's plate, typically around 1,500 miles on average in North America. So we're investing about seven calories of fossil fuel energy in the food system for every calorie of food that we get out at the end of the day. So in the context of a system where oil is becoming more scarce and expensive, this is a prescription for higher food prices, which is, of course, is exactly what we're seeing. Uh, If you look at a a graph of food prices over the past um, decade and a graph of oil prices for the past decade, they're moving in lockstep. Uh, And this is one of the factors that's leading to uh, social disruption around the world. Poor people who have to spend a large portion of their income on food are finding themselves in a situation of, of desperation now. And that's only going to get worse until we make fundamental changes in the entire food system to localize it, to reduce the reliance on fossil fuel inputs. We know how to do these things. There are perfectly good models, but they have to be applied. It has to become a matter of policy. And that's happening some places. Local food, uh, sustainable food is happening. But that tends to be viewed as sort of a coastal elite kind of thing. Yeah, not it's, happening it's in the a heartland. boutique phenomenon. Right. right. But it has to become the, the standard mainstream way of providing food for people. Uh, during World War II, we saw a situation where something like 40% of fruits and vegetables were being grown in people's backyards because the government suddenly decided that this was, this was an important program. We need to be doing something similar to that right now. More and and it should be remembered how much we can do that. I mean, the, the victory gardens, as they were yeah. called, that Richard right. refers to. I mean, really, there are very good examples of history where we can change, we can turn on a dime when we choose to do so. So when we have a crisis, and it's kind of officially declared crisis, which is what you have in a war, then we can change and people are capable of change and government's capable of driving that change to occur. So I think we should be careful with the kind of the crisis is the end kind of scenario. The crisis is the trigger for the change. Crisis is necessary. In fact, you, uh, uh, Paul Gilding, you write about gas rationing and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh, grounding planes. There's some pretty strong stuff sure. in there. When we hit the mm-hmm. wall, you're talking about a very heavy government hand in the marketplace and some things that would not be considered uh, absent that crisis. Correct. And, and I think we go back to World War II to think of examples where that does work and works in a democracy. You know, you can still have a democracy. You can still have businesses, still have markets functioning, but government has to direct the change to occur rapidly. It wouldn't have had to if we acted 30 years ago, but we left it too late to do it quickly. Therefore, you have to have the change occur. However, business still succeeds. Markets still deliver things. Just the government has to put in place the framework uh, around it, the expectations of what we need to have. And, and we have to elect the governments that will do that. And we're certainly capable of that level of change once we, once we choose to embark upon that path. Paul Gilding is a professor at Cambridge University's Program for Sustainability Leadership. Our other guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is Richard Heinberg, a senior fellow at the Post Carbon Institute. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, but let's talk about that World War II analogy. During World War II, the enemy was visible. Mm-hmm. This time, the enemy is us, well, and we're not visible. Mm-hmm. I mean, right? Yeah. It's carbon, you can't see carbon. You yeah. can see Hitler. <clears throat> yeah, look, yes and no. So... Um, a couple of things about that. First of all is that let's remember that we were in denial about the threat of, the, of, of Japan and Germany in World War II for a long time. And the arguments were scarily similar, right? The threat isn't that bad, right? We can't afford to respond. 
the people won't tolerate that level of change. Right? All the same arguments were used, and then suddenly we changed. Now, we changed for a physical you know, events in the case of Pearl Harbour, but people always say, oh, yes, but the invasion of Poland, what's the invasion of Poland that is the equivalent for Europe today? And the answer, of course, is that well, Poland was the trigger in hindsight, but it was actually the third country that Hitler took over. Why didn't we wait for France? Why didn't we wait for the next one? And the answer is we, we pick a trigger, and then historians say that was the trigger. Right? And then we respond. And I think, you know, if you look at this in terms of climate change or resource constraint, if you look back historically, we will say, well, it was bloody obvious. 2008, record oil prices, record food prices, global economic collapse. We were in denial for a few more years, but then 2010, we hit record food prices again. We had the global economy going into the meltdown again. You know, we had the worst um, floods on record in Pakistan. We had the hottest year on record 2010 around the world, etc., etc. But we still didn't change. So, yes... The point is we are still waiting for that trigger but the pattern of behaviour is very consistent in humans is that you avoid it, you stay in denial as long as you possibly can and then you change. And If you, anyone knows a drug addict or an alcoholic, you know, when do they change? When the wife leaves, when they lose the job, when they're in the gutter, you know, pick your own crisis to respond to but then what we have now is that we're lying in the gutter you know, and we're saying we really like it down here, it's excellent, I love it. You know? <laughs> but we will bad, in actual fact respond. Australia's been through some epic biblical droughts and floods yeah. recently. Has Australia wakened up? Is that part of why, the reason why carbon tax got through in Australia? Look, I, th- I think the, we, we, try, do we do our best to stay with America whenever we can. You know, in wars, any time we can, we try and follow you as closely as possible. But on this one, I'm afraid we've diverted just slightly. We still have a very kind of anti-climate change um, Republican equivalent party. But the big difference in Australia is they don't deny the climate science. And I think that's why. I think because we've had the worst bushfires on the hottest bushfires on record by a factor of two or three, right? So the worst bushfires in terms of scale. We've had floods, as you said, covering an area the size of France and Germany. We've had phenomenal droughts and so on before that. So yes, we've had those things. And so the debate in Australia is really one about how we act on climate change and whether we should go now or later, not whether we should act. And I think the so the the the, the, the jury is definitely in in terms of the climate science, and that's a big difference, I think, because of the physical impacts. Richard, you want to jump in here in terms of denial or yeah. when we're going to be well, I, finally wake up? I think our country has, has a larger capacity for denial. Uh, <laughs> it's one of our core strengths, yes. Yes, uh, and I think we're seeing, I mean, look at what's happening in Texas right now with the record drought, and, and yet uh, uh, still the, uh, that state is, is very largely a uh, it state's um, Governor uh, Perry is, is a major climate denier. So, yeah, I think we're going to have to hit the wall before uh, we see fundamental change. But, but this is, uh, in, in some ways, it's, it, it's a slow motion crash, but it could have very, uh, very rapid components to it. And I think the financial system is, is an aspect of, of, of the system as a whole that is capable of crashing very rapidly. And, uh, and there, there's the prospect for that to occur, I think, even within the next couple of years. And just, just if I can just add on that issue of denial as an outsider, I think the, the context is very important here, and that is that you know, we always stay in denial for a long time on these major issues, and the worse the evidence gets that attacks that denial, the stronger the denial has to become to defend itself. So it's like an organism. Right. Right. So the evidence in the U.S. now is so overwhelming in terms of the droughts and wildfires in Texas and so on. I mean, you've had so much evidence, and it's so clear globally and locally. 
So why is the denial so strong as it has to be to defend itself against the evidence? Right, but at some point that still breaks through. So I look around at America and kind of laugh as opposed to despair about the level of denial because you know it's about to end. Right, because that's what denial does. It gets more and more extreme. I'm sort of waiting for someone to argue for the we should get rid of all airline regulations because gravity is only a theory. You know, and, <laughs> and there is that sort of point where it becomes absurd and you do laugh about it because it's so irrational and so in, in denial of the evidence that you know it can't last because we're not irrational. This is not an irrational country, right? It's a highly educated, scientifically literate country, right? And so it's going to change in that regard at some point. And you write also that there's a risk, though, uh, in seeding U.S. leadership that, that there are some other countries, China, that's, that's going ahead, that could risk to undermine the moral authority of, of democracy, right? That that, you know, the longer the U.S. and other democracies sort of stay stuck on this, that it, in the, the great disruption could undermine democracy. Mm-hmm. That was really interesting. Um, well, fundamentally what we're seeing right now in the U.S. is, is a, a, a challenge to the political system as, as it exists. The political system has become sclerotic. It's become uh, a creature, in effect, of, of Wall Street. And now we have people out on the street demanding fundamental change. In that. And the demands are not, not uh, finely crafted. It's not really clear what's being asked for. But at the same time, we all, I think, virtually all Americans understand that, that the, 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 the level of economic inequality in the country has grown to socially unsustainable levels. And this is provoked into crisis by the failure of economic growth. As long as the economy was growing, it was possible to paper over all of these problems, the political problems, the, uh, the corruption and, on Wall Street and so on. But as growth comes to an end, suddenly all of these problems bubble out to the surface and they become uh, 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 ones that can't be ignored anymore. And I think in a global context, I think the, the China story is really very, very important. And I think the, the reason it's so important is because if, if they're more capable of responding to this crisis, right, then the symbolism to the rest of the world becomes really powerful. Okay, so America right. can't respond, is in decline economically, can't cope with this sort of ecological resource crisis. China is strong economically, has money in the bank, is bailing out European countries, right, is leading the world on clean tech and has a future. So on the surface, that looks like pretty straightforward, right? Democracy is in decline, autocracy is on the rise. However... Then it gets more complicated because then you look at South Korea, you look at Taiwan, you look at Japan, you look elsewhere and you say actually there are democracies that are responding differently and they are responding in the democratic context with strong government action. So I think the, the, the threat may be to democracy and I think that's quite a powerful argument, certainly in the Middle East at the moment, um, but it may also be to weak government. It, the, the threat may not be so much to democracy as the idea that markets should be let free to roam without constraint. Because that idea is failing very badly, right? And the re- reason the Chinese economy is booming is it's a capitalist economy just without democracy, right? And that's a very different context. And those Asian democracies that, that you mentioned have a stronger government hand uh, guiding the marketplace. Yeah. You know, Singapore, Japan, and some of those countries have very industrial yeah. policies yes. that are very different. So it's a different as a form of uh, uh, you know state capitalism versus mm. the market capitalism that well, we have here. I think it's really very important to unpack that. Quite, quite accurately, because I think it is, it, is a, it is a different kind of idea. It is that, that, that markets are good, that capitalism is a great way of allocating capital, right, and testing, testing technologies and making things happen. And, of course, you have to have government rules around that to work, as we do everywhere. 
I mean, when people say we should let the market rip, just let the market do its work and we don't need government, I say, well, let's start with contract law. So let's take out contract law because trust should be a market force. If you don't behave with trust, you won't, we won't do business with you anymore. And then they, especially the Wall Street bankers, scream at that point, oh, no, no, have to have those limits. Okay, so let's talk about which limits we have then. Right? And of course you have to have limits. And so I think the answer is not central planning, not state capitalism, but, but government strength to constrain and guide the market, but leave the market do what it does well, which is not, you know, dealing with environmental issues without intervention. Paul Gilding is a professor at Cambridge University and author of The Great Disruption. Other guests here today at Climate One is Richard Heinberg, senior fellow of the Post Carbon Institute and author of The End of Growth. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Paul, you mentioned allocating capital. I'd like to ask you and Richard where you allocate your personal capital, knowing that uh, the bust uh, is coming. Where are you uh, squirreling away your own money? Well, uh, my wife Janet and I have spent the last 10 years retrofitting our suburban Santa Rosa home for energy efficiency, solar panels for electricity and also for hot water, solar food dryer, solar uh, cooker, three chickens in the backyard, 25 fruit and nut trees. You're getting ready. That's basically where we've, we've put our effort. Uh, I think it's uh, local resilience is really going to be the name of the game. There's, as, as Paul has been describing, there's a great deal that central governments can and should be doing. But in a situation where in this country we have a, a, a national government that is uh, dis- very largely dysfunctional, it's going to be really very much up to local communities, states, and, but, but especially cities and counties, to uh, uh, develop more resilience. And that means more local inventories, more local production, uh, less specialization, more generalization. These are basic sort of principles, but the way that expresses itself in, in real life is by people becoming more self-sufficient. Paul? Yeah, I think very similar in the sense that I'm, I'm living on a farm in Tasmania um, in the belief that it's a long way south, so it's very cold, which has a lot of margin for error. Um, and also, likewise, in terms of, of a fair bit of food self-sufficiency in that process. But also, I think, I mean, the joy of being writers is you don't have to worry much about capital and its investment, yeah. um, which is good. Um, but I do think, seriously, if, if you did have money, then I, would, I think we're looking at a, a period of rapid change in volatility. So people like Jeremy Grantham, you know, argue there's great opportunity in that space, which there is, because some companies will boom in this in this area, some economies will do well, some will do badly. You know, I think, but I think it's it's a a skillful a skillful investor to understand how that process is going to unfold. Because you would say, I believe that that the, the carbon risk is not sort of the, the market's having trouble pricing risk these days, yes. right? Because a lot of the extreme weather, insurance companies is throwing off their, their actuarial tables and that some of these companies, if you invest in the S&P 500, it's a lot of energy companies that are externalizing the cost of production. At some point, you seem to be saying that's going to be uh, put on their balance sheet in some yep. way and that's going to be a big, big hit. Yeah, so I mean, I've, I've written about this um, in various places, including in the book about the coming kind of crash in, in carbon prices, not carbon trading prices, but coal, oil and gas. And if you look at the science, the science says very clearly that we cannot afford to go past two degrees of warming, right? And, that, and I think it should be one degree, and many scientists agree with that, but let's just say where the US, Chinese, Indian and Australian governments are, which is two degrees is the maximum we can go to. To achieve that, we can't afford to burn any more than about 25 or 30% of the proven reserves of oil, coal and gas. 
right, which means that 75% of those reserves or thereabouts are actually on balance sheets today and can't ever be burnt, therefore can't be sold unless we go past two degrees. If we go past two degrees, you have a whole bunch of other companies that will be in serious trouble in insurance, in tourism, in food and so on. So whichever path you choose is the most likely or in between, there are massive economic impacts which will have a direct translation onto share prices and onto risk in the market and that will result in a major financial correction at some point which will make the one we've had recently pale by comparison in my view. So you understand why some people are buying gold and gold and chickens in the backyard, yeah. really. Um, you write about uh, Chad Holliday as one of the most committed, thoughtful CEOs anywhere in the world, and yet he's chairman of Bank of America, which is also at the center of some mm. of the economic and growth crises we're talking about. Yeah, no, really interesting. And, and it's an interesting question about where, uh, you know, who runs these companies and what are they like? And well-intentioned people yeah. at the limits of systems that sure. they can only do so much. Yeah, and Chad, you know, Chad, uh, you know, who I worked with for many years, talks about this in his DuPont context that you know, he tried really hard to change the attitudes in the, you know, the business roundtable in the US and the chemical industry and so on. And that it was this very strong resist- resistance to that change. And even someone like him in that context felt there was a limit to what he could achieve, right, as the CEO of one of the world's largest companies because the system around him wasn't ready for change, mm. right? And so I think it's, it's sort of, uh, my personal view is that it's too simplistic, right, to talk about the corporate bad guys run the world and we're all the victims of it. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. There are plenty of corporate bad guys. The Koch brothers are the kind of the, the bad guys from central casting at the moment in terms of these sort of issues. But, but it's, it's a more complicated system than that. I think that we have to recognise that the way change is going to occur is not some sort of sudden, sudden, some sudden change in the elites. It's going to be us that change it. Now, we are going to demand the change in our democracies, in our companies, in our investment patterns and so on. That's where the change is going to occur. Richard Heinberg, how is that change going to happen? Well, over the short term, um, I think it's, it's going to happen as a, uh, uh, well, as, as a great disruption, as, as Paul says. Uh, it's it's the, the evolutionary process is, I think, uh, going to be uh, driven by dramatic change, uh, in, first in the, in the financial area, and then uh, uh, it, that, will, that will impact people's lives and they will have to start making other decisions. I mean, it, w- it would be nice, for example, if we were all to decide to change our, our uh, transportation patterns and, and reduce our, our transportation I think that's actually going to happen, but not as a result of personal choice, but as a result of uh, inability to afford to travel. We will be less mobile in the future, uh, but it won't necessarily be the result of government regulation. High fuel prices, carbon, that's that sort of thing. Let's talk about the uh, after consumerism, life after shopping, life after growth. Uh, what does this steady state economy look like? You know, we talk about, you both write about happiness and sort of a different kind of uh, uh, higher, higher evolutionary state. Give us a picture of after the, it really hits the fan, this great disruption. What's on the other side of the chasm? Look, I, I think in terms of, Thinking about it in your personal life, which I think is a good way to translate this, we can kind of have a conversation about what does the structure of the global economy look like, yeah, or we can have a, a conversation about what does my life feel like. Let's just go to the latter first. So, you know, any one of us, if we put our minds to it, could easily, and um, without any disruption to our lifestyle, buy 10% less stuff next year, right? It'll actually be a liberation, less stuff to find somewhere to put, you know, put it all apart from anything else, less credit card debt. So, 10% less stuff would be easy to achieve. And yet, who wouldn't like to have five more weeks holiday next year? 
Because that's what the trade-off is. 10% less stuff, five weeks more holiday. Right now, of course, that requires a certain restructuring in terms of work patterns and so on, but the point is that's the, that's the trade-off. So the future looks like less work, right, less money, right, less stuff, and a lot more time. Now, the good news is that all the research, the social scientist research into happiness says very clearly and very consistently across cultures, right, and across time, is that what makes us happy once we have our basic needs met, I emphasise that, once we have our basic needs met, what makes us happy is things like community, right, things like being more involved with people around you, like giving and contributing to your community and doing things with meaning, right, being physically active and fit, right, so being healthy but also being, you know, physically active every day, smelling the roses, taking notice of the world around you, all those things make us happy and make us consistently feel a sense of life satisfaction and none of those things are available in Walmart. Right? So the point of that is that you can imagine a life very easily where productivity increases, which we have all the time, don't result in more money and more consumption, but result in more time and more time to do the things that actually make us happy. Remembering that there's a great Australian author, Clive Hamilton, who said that basically all you need to understand about the global economy is that it's built on one simple idea. That is that we all buy stuff we don't need with money we haven't got to impress people we don't like. <laughs> Richard Einberg. Well, well this, this change is going to happen uh, more easily if it's led by public policy. We, we are now organizing our lives around GDP with, as, as the measure of how well we're doing as a society. As long as GDP is growing, everybody's happy. Uh, you know, more jobs being created, uh, higher returns on investments and so on. But if we are at a position, which I think Paul and I would agree, uh, of the end of, of growth as we've known it, that there's no more cheese at the end of that tunnel, then we have to start organizing our lives around, it, around different measures and goals. And GDP has been criticized for decades as being a perverse indicator. There are things that make GDP go up that actually make our lives worse. Uh, if we can organize our uh, economy around the pursuit of better quality of life and higher uh, integrity of the environment as, as explicit goals, then we can make life better for ourselves and our communities even as we consume less. But I think it's unless we, unless we lead with the indicators and the goals, uh, it's going to be hard to convince people that they're actually feeling better if they're actually if they're watching their income go down. Richard Heinberg is uh, author of The End of Growth. Other guest today at Climate One is Paul Gilding, the author of The Great Disruption. We're going to put uh, audience microphone out here and invite your participation uh, with a brief uh, comment or question. That is a one part uh, one question. And I emphasize brief. If you're on this side, we appreciate if you could go around uh, through that door. And my colleague Jane Ann is where the uh, where the line will be, uh, starting starting there. Um, while we're getting that organized, I just uh, want to talk about the response of the victims. There's some people out there. There's a real moral dimension here that the people who contributed least to this problem are suffering most. You're very close to it, uh, the South Pacific mm -hmm. Asian, uh, South Pacific countries. Uh, what's going to happen with the, the response of the victims, and, and what are we doing about that? Look, I think this is going to be really serious. I mean, if you've got countries, right, that effectively cease to exist, in some cases literally cease to exist because they'll be underwater, some of the South Pacific islands, you have countries like Bangladesh, which will be pretty much, you know, written off, then you're going to have hundreds of millions of refugees, if not billions of refugees, moving around the world with looking for someone to blame, the, the geopolitical and local politics of that gets very scary. 
Right? And so I do think we have to recognise, and I'm sort of having this conversation with a lot more military and defence type planners now because they recognise this is coming because they see the same numbers that we do. Right? I think we are going to see a period of great instability and insecurity. But I do think it's, it's a little more complex and the rich will be okay and the poor will suffer. I do think that, you know, if, if, if you see breakdown of systems, in many ways we in the West are more exposed to the just-in-time, you know, complicated supply chain system than if you're in a developing country living on, on the land. Right. So I think it's actually a little more complex than the poor will suffer. Uh, the the uh, store shelves at Whole Foods get pretty uh, bare pretty fast yeah. if there's global supply chain disruptions. Let's have our audience question, please. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for coming to our forum. One of the tipping points for some of us seems to be the Excel pipeline. And for those of us who are committed to seeing that this doesn't happen because it's important as a way of uh, turning attention more to renewables and away from um, the crap that's going to come out of there, if you'll pardon my French, um, some of us are writing letters, some of us are signing petitions. Uh, we've been uh, admonished to uh, write personal letters, handwritten, stamped envelopes. What more would you advise we do to make the XL pipeline a, um, a thing of the past? Mm-hmm. The Keystone XL pipeline, of course, mm-hmm. the, the tar sands pipeline from Canada to Texas. Thank you. Um, you know, we, we just encircled the White House in, uh, in protest. I mm-hmm. think putting people out in the streets is, is the most effective thing at this point. Um, writing letters, uh, probably good idea, but uh, uh, it, it, it has to be clear that there are political costs to going ahead with projects like this. Just to reinforce that, I think it's very, you know, the, the great social movements of history have involved physical direct action. Right? So being there physically, being, you know, confronting the thing that's wrong and being really clear about that and putting yourself on the line has always been part of that social change process and I think is critical right now. We're discussing the limits of economic growth. Let's have our next audience question. Uh, thank you. Uh, I come at your discussion as an economist and there are many in my profession who suggest that the way to get to the other side is by unfettering the market, letting the market do its thing and prices will go up and we'll all adjust to doing the right thing. Other economists, other people in the profession argue, no, uh, we need more government action. We need government subsidies, government regulation, government pushing us, so to speak. I'd like to know where the two of you come down on this. Thank you. Paul Gilding? Sure. And the answer is that the, the, the market unfettered, the market unleashed is what we have today, right? And we've seen what that caused, right? Climate change, resource constraint. The market is very good in theory, right? The trouble is that we live in reality. And when you don't price things, the markets don't work. And therefore, you have to have government uh, put in place the things that encourage the market. I'm a big fan of markets. I'm a big believer in business. I think it's a very powerful mechanism for driving change. But you have to put the constraints around it because markets will not self-constrain. Right. I think people would agree that just how tight is that constraint. Correct. Right. Yeah. Uh, Richard? Yeah, I, I would just like to say, you know, in, in this country, every time we've had a, a fundamental and um, profound technological change, it's been driven by government, whether it was the uh, railroads, government giving land to the railroads in the 19th century, or uh, the, the space program, satellite communications, the Internet, what have you. But right now we're in a situation where 
what's required is the biggest technological change in our history. And we're, we're expecting that that change is going to be driven entirely by the market when we're in a, uh, a recession where companies are sitting on trillions of dollars and not investing it because they don't see demand appearing in, in the economy. It's not going to happen. The only way this, these fundamental changes in our energy system, transport system, food system are going to be driven is with uh, government effort. Let's have our next audience question. Yes, uh, it seems like what you're describing is a situation where one species on the planet has grown so large that we're simply out of balance with the resources. If that's the case, why aren't we talking about human numbers as part of the dialogue? Yeah. Sure. But, uh, Paul Gilding. This is a really terribly important issue, and thank you for asking it, is that you know, population control, population policy, would have been really very helpful in the 60s, and the 70s would have been helpful, 80s would have been probably still useful. The horse has well and truly bolted. So basically we have seven to nine, seven going on nine billion people today. And between, just think about the numbers, this is a straight mathematical question. Between now and 2050, we'll go from seven billion people, framing the current problem, to nine billion people. So let's make the problem worse by about 30 or 40%. In the same time frame, we're going to increase per capita consumption by 300%. Right? So the reality is that with economic growth and consumerism, Consumption has left for dead the issue of population in terms of the cause of the problem. If we could go backwards and do it with 2 billion people, it would be a lot easier. right? But in terms of the economics of it, population is no longer the major driver. Now, you allude to the sort of the species being out of control and nature having a say in that process. If we don't fix it, nature will. So in that sense, the population will be brought under control, but that's a very ugly kind of process of fixing it. And, and I agree with everything Paul just said. And at the same time, uh, it's absolutely fundamental that we begin the, the, uh, implementing population policy uh, now because the, those who will uh, suffer most from lack of good global population policy will be the poorest people. People in, in poor countries with fast-growing young populations will see the worst impacts. Next audience question. Yes, sir. Hi, my name's Nils Michael uh, Langenborg, and Richard, you actually came to the Green MBA back in 2007 in a small little place called Casablanca and presented to uh, about 10 of us some of your information. And there was two things in there that you showed. One was a obscure reference from some GAO thing where a guy said that the expectations had to change, but it was buried and, and set aside as in terms of what our lifestyle would be. You also showed a chart at the end that we all thought was the end of peak oil, but it was uh, yeast cultures, yeast in a sugar culture, and how they consumed all the sugar, created alcohol as a byproduct, and killed themselves because they basically acted independently from each other. And you ended the conversation with, are we smarter than yeast? Do you remember that? Well, I've used that for about four years now, <clears throat> so thank you for that. But I also wanted to set the... You, you, you have a quick question? Or? I do have a question. I'm sorry, Greg. Uh, Adam Smith wrote a book back in 1759 called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, 17 years before the Wealth of Nations. In that, he wrote that the, the, they are led by an invisible hand to make nearly the same distribution of the necessaries of life. Uh, and had the earth been divided into equal portion, portions among all its inhabitants, and thus without intending it, without knowing it, advance the interests of society and afford means to the multiplication of the species. So that was his original invisible hand. Given that Smith is the, quote-unquote, father of modern economics, although he's not, what are the necessaries of life? 
what do we have to say are the bottom baseline things that we need Mm -hmm. in order to go forward, and how do we change that expectation so that we are smarter than yeast? Well, Richard worked out the answer. I'll say a couple of things. (laughs) I think a couple of comments. One is that if you look at Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, you know, all the way through to Keynes, they all talked about growth having limits, actually, right, which we forget. They all talked about the growth, you know, once the growth economic problem is resolved, well, which they referred to the distribution of the basic needs, so I'll come back to that question in a moment. It, but they understood that obviously, I mean, obviously you can't have infinite economic growth on a finite planet. No one would think that, apart from an economist perhaps. But like there is this sort of madness in that idea, right? I mean, I'm, my best friends are economists, but th- th- that idea that you can have infinite growth on a finite planet is of course ridiculous. But we somehow live with that lie every day, which I think is a kind of interesting example of where we're suddenly going to flip and, and change our attitudes very quickly. But the answer of basic needs, we're about to find out, right? And the answer is food, right? Energy, right? The very basic needs are the things that keep us having comfortable, reasonably secure lives in a day-to-day sense. And we've forgotten how fundamental food is. And that's why I think food is going to be the, the trigger point, if you like, for the big response that I see coming. Richard Heimberg? Yeah, another, I think another trigger point is going to be money. If we, we rely in modern urban societies on a functioning, uh, monetary system, uh, we, when we need money, we go to the ATM machine and we trust that something will come out and when we use that money, somebody on the other side of the transaction will accept it. Uh, those may not be givens, uh, for, it, certainly not for all countries in, over, over the next, uh, few years. Uh, so I think we're going to have to reinvent not only economics as a discipline, but actually reinvent our economies in certain ways because we have tied the economy so closely to debt, which implies the payment, not only repayment, not only of the debt itself, but also interest, which then implies the necessity of continual growth. If we're at a point in history where economies are not going to grow the way they have previously, then we're going to have to reinvent the way our economy works. Again, back to localism and resilience. Let's have our next audience question. Hey there. Uh, on the past five or six years, I've been taking your advice, paid down debt, bought a little farm in Sebastopol, planted an orchard, chickens, insulation, all that. Um, I think there are physical solutions to the physical problems. I'm concerned about society. I'm concerned about the most likely social scenario, which doesn't look very good to me for the next 15 or 20 years. People in my generation don't have faith in government or corporate structures. What's going to happen? What's the most likely play? <clears throat> well, it's easy, it's easy to spin out apocalyptic scenarios. However, uh, one of the saving graces of our species is our uh, ability to change culture via language and to do so very rapidly. We can change our expectations. We can change our... Uh, views of the present and the future uh, extremely rapidly. And I think that's actually happening in real time. Just what's happened over the past few weeks with the emergence of the Occupy movement in this country, suddenly questions that were not on anyone's agenda are before the public and being discussed in the national media. Now, maybe this is only a microcosm of what actually is needed uh, that discussion needs to broaden greatly to encompass the kinds of issues we've been talking about uh, this afternoon. But it's, I think it's a useful example of how, uh, how 
cultural and social and political change can happen very rapidly. Richard Heinberg is the author of The End of Growth. We also have Paul Gilding, author of The Great Disruption. Yes, Paul? Just on that issue, I think it's, it's again, you can paint you know, some pretty ugly scenarios unfolding, and we can easily imagine them occurring. But um, people's ability to change is really quite extraordinary. Right? And I think when they again, have to. When they have to. And World War II shows that we can do that, but also personally. You know, we all know someone who's had a health crisis or a company's had a financial crisis or a government's had a, a crisis of some sort, and sudden change that appeared unimaginable one day becomes normalised the next. Right? So to imagine George W. nationalising the auto industry to me was unimaginable. Right? And then happened. Right? The, the Wall Street Bank is arguing for government intervention in the economy. Unimaginable. Then happened. Right, so but we do do dramatic change very quickly once we decide to. So I think it's important not just to focus on the kind of the negative scenarios, which are all possible, right? Because this is the choice that we get to make. The future doesn't sort of just happen. Right? It happens by choices that we make collectively, and we can decide to create a very different future. And we can do it thanks to the sort of connectedness of modern society, you know, very fast if we chose to do so. I'm not saying it's going to happen that way. I'm saying is that we can choose for it to happen that way. Let's have our next audience question. Well, that was a nice lead-in, talking about change and triggers and famine. Famine sometimes will trigger the U.N. mustering its reserves and bringing in food to the very worst-hit areas. But what's going to trigger safe, effective, available, and affordable birth control coming in, too? Yeah, good, good question. And I think, I think the answer is, again, the crisis. I think is that we saw in China an example of, of you know, what we would consider to be draconian population control. Um, I think that like, like the solutions, as you point out, are all waiting to happen. We know what to do on population. We know what to do on birth control. We know what to do in food production. We know what to do in everything. We just haven't decided to act yet. Right? And so when do we act? We act when we recognise the crisis is underway. And I say recognise the crisis underway as opposed to <laughs> the crisis being underway because the crisis is underway. The only thing we're missing is the end of denial. So once denial ends, I think, then you look at this as a mechanical kind of uh, economic political process and you say, what are the levers that we can pull? And one of them will be absolutely birth control. No question. And making that available. One of them will be more localised food. One of them will be renewable energy. You know, we know what we need to do. We know how to do it. We can do it fairly fast once we decide to do so. So we're just sort of waiting for that trigger to, to unleash the uh, potential. Part of birth control is educating women in uh, developing countries, which sta stabilizes it fertility rates. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Next audience question. Yes, sir. Thank you for the opportunity to ask the question. Uh, I've read consistently that the price, the cost, the cost of oil companies of new oil is like $200 a barrel. So what do you think of the concept of forcing a breakup of these vertically integrated companies so the exploration would have to be an independent company? Uh, interesting idea. I, I, I haven't heard a, a figure that high. I, I'm, uh, it, it, it depends on, on, the, uh, on the resource. I've seen uh, costs for development of new production capacity anywhere from 60 to $80 a barrel. And then, of course, if you're talking about stuff like oil shale, it, it certainly would be much higher. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good uh, strategy to, to explore, a breakup of vertical in integration to force the the, uh, all of those new costs of exploration onto companies that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it, and that would shut down the system effectively. Mm. There's a few lobbyists <laughs> that would get in the way of that one. But. I think just one more thing on that is, is that the, the idea of too big to fail, 
you know, has become kind of dominant in the economy now. And I think the very simple answer there is the same. Too big to fail, too big to have. Right? So if any company uh, is so big that we can't afford for it to fail, it can't be allowed to operate in a free market because the risk is simply too great of the system, as we saw with those investment banks in that period of time. So if companies are too big to fail, they should be broken up. Not nationalised, not destroyed, just broken up so that we don't have any one point of exposure that is too great. That's just good risk management. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, thank you. I'm wondering uh, what impact do you think some of the changes like the EPA, GHG reporting requirement and the SEC asking companies to report climate change as a material financial risk to their business, what impact can some of those changes have on investment and allocation of capital and Paul Gilding, you work with uh, corporate leaders. I mean, are they being is the government prods prompting them to pay more risk to uh, put more attention to carbon risk? Definitely, no question. And and I think we should separate the process of psychological change from the process of physical economic change. And I think that the the issue about reporting, you know, as, as the questioner said about reporting on greenhouse gas emissions and so on, is actually very important because because companies are used to measuring and reporting and then acting on things that they measure and report. So the very process of having to have it on your balance sheet or having to have it in some public report. And the historical example in the US was the toxic release inventory, right? And, and I know, because I worked with DuPont after that, after that time, but when the toxic release inventory came out, which listed just the sheer pounds of pollutants the companies were putting out, and suddenly DuPont was the world's biggest polluter. Got right? their attention. Got their yeah. attention. <laughs> they didn't want to be the world's biggest polluter. Now, that wasn't an economic change. It was a reputational, you know, sort of cultural change. But those things are quite powerful. Now, people often say when they read my book, look, I say, so we should just wait for the crisis to come and not do anything now. And I said, no, no, wrong, wrong answer. Everything we're doing now gets us ready for that crisis and gets us more able to respond. But many of these things are actually quite important training exercises. Now, we're going to go on a sort of combined marathon sprint when this begins. Right, it's going to last, as Richard said, for decades, but it's going to be a sprint to get there. So the more training we do for that moment, the better off we're going to be when the time comes. If you're just joining us on the radio, this uh, podcast of this and other Climate Run programs are available in the iTunes store searching for Climate One. Let's have our last audience question. Hi. I, was, I don't know if I heard you correctly, but did you say that the, the future and current economics depends on a current global temperature in the Earth's atmosphere or the temperature of the Earth currently and the variation upon one degree of that or two degrees? So what is that number that our planet needs to exist at to be economically stable? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then beyond that number, because I, I didn't know that, and then um, – Beyond that number, everybody knows you, the less energy put out there on efforts of project is less energy exerted. And, of course, you know, less pollution would lead to uh, reducing global climate uh, warming. But we are moving closer to the sun, so that's a natural warmth. So what is the... What is the equation of that impact on the current Earth's atmosphere and rotation and all the the combined efforts? And then I never hear about cooling effects. Mm -hmm. What can we do to cool our environment if our environment is, and what you said today, financially determinant 
upon this one number and the variation of that from one to two. I mean, and then you have a battle if it's two that, and Thank not you. one, Thanks. and it's going to, well, I mean, what, you know, what should we be doing? Yeah, look, just, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated science question, but let me try and summarize that. Is If we go past two degrees of warming, and that's two degrees above pre-industrial levels, the economy gets very hard to sustain. Right, so that's sort of the number we know. Beyond that, we're kind of in crisis. Probably above one degree above pre-industrial levels, we almost can't cope, and that's really questionable at that point. And so I think the answer is that, and, and all those other issues about getting closer to the sun, the Earth's axis, and so on, are all legitimate variations in climate, but not irrelevant to our time frame. Right, so they're all very marginal in the time frame that we're concerned about. Over tens of thousands of years, they matter, but over our hundred years, it's all about our impact, and that's the only thing we have to worry about. And you also believe that some limited, reversible geoengineering yep. would be advisable? Uh, well, back to the cooling issue is that, yes, we, we know a variety of safe ways that we can influence the global climate by reflectivity, for example. Now, putting sulfur in the atmosphere is a disaster, right? There are some really stupid ideas out there, but there are some good ideas out there about increasing reflectivity, about taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and burying it, right? There's a variety of ways you can do it. It's quite expensive. But it's a lot cheaper than the collapse of civilization, which is very expensive. I think we have to end it there. Our thanks to Richard Heinberg and Paul Gilding uh, for their comments here at Climate One. Thank you all for coming. I'm Greg Dalton.